Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Joe Bergeron. He's a medical doctor and syndenologist, and he has used his background to understand aspects of the death of Jesus from what is shown on the cloth and what is known historically. There are some incredibly interesting conclusions that come out of his work. So let me tell you a little bit more about Joe. Uh, Joe Bergeron, MD, is a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation. He has written a peer-reviewed article for the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine on Jesus's cause of death and a collaborative article with Gary Habermas, PhD, in the Irish Theological Quarterly on hallucination hypotheses seeking to explain away the resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Bergeron's research also led him to study the Shroud of Turin. His book is the culmination of his research. It's called The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Medical Doctor Examines the Death and Resurrection of Christ. And here it is, and it's available uh, uh, in Amazon and wherever. Uh, Dr. Bergeron lectures in conferences, churches, and universities on the Shroud of Turin, and medical perspectives of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Joe, thank you for being here. Welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Guy. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Yes, absolutely. So glad to have you. And uh, so he's, uh, Joe is going to actually uh, do a presentation. But before you do that, Joe, tell us your backstory on how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin. Well, as, as you said, uh, I'm a, a practicing physician. I'm a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation. A lot of folks may not know what that is, and there are a lot of facets to that kind of uh, specialty. My concentration has been in uh, evaluating and treating uh, musculoskeletal injuries, and I've done uh, medical legal work in that regard. And uh, so uh, that's what got me interested in studying the crucifixion of Jesus and the mechanism of Jesus' death and so on. And in the context of doing that, I had to study the Shroud of Turin because it was part of Dr. Barbet's uh, hypothesis that Jesus had suffocated to, to death. And uh, there are logical problems with that, and, and, and that kind of forced me into studying the Shroud of Turin in a way that I, I hadn't previously been interested in. Um, and uh, But I've studied everything I get my hands on uh, about the death and resurrection of Christ, and and the Shroud of Turin fell into that uh, uh, study, and um, so that's how I come to you today, and it's it's an honor to be with you. Yeah, fantastic, and yes, uh, Barbet has uh, definitely done quite a bit of work on that, and and your conclusions are actually uh, going to be very interesting, and I'm le definitely looking forward to learning more about that. So, okay, so the stage is set. The stage is yours. Why don't you go ahead and share your screen, and then uh, I'll let you go. And every once in a while, I'll present a few questions to you. That uh, sounds good. Okay, I'm going to. Uh, everybody wants to know whether the shroud turns authentic or not, and uh, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, I'm going to talk specifically about the examination of the man, the image of the man, and the examination of the cloth, and what it can be objective, objectively seen there. And 
listeners uh, can form their own conclusion about authenticity. What we're really after is a, a scientific observation and what we can glean from that. And authenticity becomes a subjective uh, opinion of the listener. And I, I, I meet people of every stripe, some that have a, a very uh, emotional commitment to believing the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus. And, you know, uh, credible Christian folks that believe the opposite and then folks that that don't believe anything about it. So what we really want to do is 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 uh, look at the facts and uh, listeners can come to their own conclusions uh, about the shroud. Um, yeah, I think if you uh, there you go. Yeah, sorry. I yep, no problem. <laughs> Sometimes it's interesting how it works or doesn't work when you're trying to share it. So uh, please. Um, I'm going to talk to you briefly about the burial customs of uh, the Jewish people in the first century. Again, the physical examination of the man of the shroud, uh, evidence of Roman crucifixion as described in, in the gospel that are present on the shroud, um, evidence that the shroud could date to the time of Christ, uh, the physical and chemical characteristics of the cloth itself, uh, a potential explanation of how the image of the man was formed and where I believe the cloth was manufactured. Uh, it was a cultural norm for the Jews, uh, if they were a family of means, to have a family tomb that was cut into stone. And here is an archaeological find where the entrance would be a small room, not tall enough to stand up in, but a place to prepare the remains of the deceased. Uh, the practices are well known. Uh, they would be uh, washed, then they would be uh, anointed with uh, perfumes and uh, aromatic uh, spices and flowers and so forth, wrapped in a shroud. The uh, uh, plants would be uh, sprinkled over the burial area. Uh, they would be placed in a then be placed in a uh, wooden box. When the soft tissue of components of decay were gone and only bones were left, the bones would be collected and placed in a bone box or an ossuary. And then you see rivlets here in the wall where the deceased would be placed into the wall after their bodies were prepared. If they did not have the means to have a family tomb, they might be buried in the ground. Here you see an archeological find of, of the remains of someone wrapped in a shroud and buried in the ground. Uh, here's the Shroud of Turin, and uh, you can see that it, it has the uh, characteristics of a, burial, a long cloth that could be used as a burial shroud, as we just saw. It has the front and back image of uh, the crucified man, or who appears to be crucified. Uh, you see the dark lines that go parallel to the man are, are uh, scorch spots from the fire of 1532. You see repair patches that look like triangles there that were the repairs of the nuns of the poor clares after that fire. And then you see what people have called poker holes that are kind of in an L-shaped. And those are thought to be <clears throat> from uh, incense uh, that may have been waved over the cloth as it you may have been used as a cloth on a table uh, during worship. Uh, 
the image of the man is very faint. Uh, Dr. Zugabe in his book says that when he was standing in line to see the shroud, he he couldn't see it until he got fairly close to it. And pretty much every image you see is enhanced on somewhat. This is an unenhanced image two to three meters away uh, from the shroud itself. And you can see that it is very, very faint. And when you're up close to it, many people say it's very difficult to see the image. And as when you're far away from it, it's very difficult to see. Um, so it's very faint. Uh, it, Secunda Pia, uh, your listeners probably know, took the famous photograph in 1898. Now, what he did was he, you know, the photographic technology in that time, they would use plates with emulsion on them that would be light sensitive. And the emulsion he used was accidentally or inadvertently uh, more sensitive to bluish tones. Uh, and the net effect from that was that it enhanced the image uh, so that it could be seen in a way that had never been seen before. And you see on the left, the uh, photo negative, which kind of has characteristics of a photo positive. And then on the right, you see the, the actual photo positive. Now, you understand that photographic technology didn't really occur or exist until the 1820s, uh, and people started taking photographs. So this long predates that time, and the Shroud of Turin is not a photograph by any stripe. I don't mean to suggest that, but it has characteristics that are similar. And Pia's photograph uh, kind of brought to the world's attention the image that couldn't be seen uh, this way previously. <clears throat> the physical examination of the man is about 70 kilograms estimated weight, about 72 inches tall or 138 uh, centimeters. Uh, the, uh, the back image is a little bit longer, which would be consistent with uh, a slight flexion of the trunk and legs that would occur with rigor mortis. The neck is flexed. I've heard people in a quandary about why, why don't we see the neck? Why don't we see the neck? Well, you know, if someone dies, by crucifixion, their neck is would be flexed like that. And uh, people have suggested, or one objection I've heard is that, well, you know, the flexions uh, in, that you see in the body could suggest that Jesus wasn't dead because, you know, it's flexed and rigor mortis takes a couple hours to set in. And uh, <clears throat> for a sedentary person like myself, it would probably take a couple hours for rigor to set in. But someone that dies a violent death in a high metabolic state can go into rigor mortis very quickly. There's a concept uh, of uh, cadaveric spasm, which is almost instantaneously. So uh, Jesus was dead before they took him down uh, from the cross, we, from the gospel accounts, and rigor mortis could have set in very rapidly. And that, I think, easily explains why we don't see uh, the neck, because it's flexed. Uh, there's excoriations on the forehead. Uh, the right upper lip and jaw are swollen. Na the nasal cartilage is separated. I think everybody knows the nasal prominence is cartilage, it's not bone. We would call it a broken nose, but it's a cartilage. Uh, there's puncture wounds on the scalp. Uh, there's blood flow from the puncture wounds, which would be consistent with clot disruption. There are, depending on who counts them, 100 or more bidirectional uh, scourge marks that have a dumbbell-shaped type of uh, 
imprint and Dr. Rogers, and I'm citing work of Ray Rogers largely as we go through this, uh, among others, but he saw uh, visible or slight serum halos uh, there uh, by, uh, by ultraviolet light. And there's abrasions on the uh, shoulder, which uh, some believe uh, are signs that he was carrying the patibulum, the, which would be the, um, the horizontal section of the cross, which would be what was carried to the crucifixion site. The vertical section was permanently placed in the ground. Um, there is a puncture wound uh, in the chest uh, on the right between the fifth and sixth rib um, and blood flow from that. And again, just to look at the shroud uh, images again, you see uh, blood emanating from the puncture wounds. Uh, you see, I don't know if you can see my arrow here, the, the blood goes around the back as if the mm -hmm. uh, individual is lying on, on their back. You see blood rivulets from the uh, puncture wounds in the wrist. You can see some evidence of flexion uh, at the legs and uh, at the feet here in slightly different positions. Uh, these would be uh, signs of uh, rigor mortis. Mm. Uh, the puncture wounds in the scalp are, are very are a peculiar finding, and and it almost if if it came from the crown of, crown of thorns, it really couldn't be anybody but but Jesus, or it would be hard to explain it as being anybody else. Uh, crowns were common in in the Roman Empire and in, in the Roman culture, and uh, the most honored crown in in Rome, in ancient Rome, would be called the crown of grass. And how that was obtained would be by unanimous vote of the army, a general who, by his brilliance and bravery, saved the army from destruction and led them to victory. They would collect plant material from the area they had conquered and made a, a, make a crown out of it uh, for the general. It was a very rare thing. We don't even really have anything like that in, in our culture. And I believe, and I'm not the only one, that when they made the crown of thorns for Jesus, they were mocking him uh, as if he had obtained the crown of grass. Yeah, if if you don't mind, uh, you know, one thing that uh, I've run across there as well for the crown is um, uh, whether it was uh, regular for a crucified man to be crowned. And it, it seemed to me, based on the research that I've found, is that that's relatively unusual? Is that what you also found as well? Yes, I, I, it's it would not be part of the of the, of the usual Roman crucifixion practice, and that's why I say it. I, you know, it, it's a, a very peculiar finding, and it it really strongly points to the the image being the image of Jesus Christ. Um, the the condemned person would carry the horizontal section to the cross naked through the street carrying the Titulus Crucis, which would name the crimes for which they were being executed in the local language, the, the uh, legislative language of Latin and, uh, and Greek being the common language of the Mediterranean world. Uh, and here you see the depiction of the Tau Cross, which is what, what they would have used in Jesus' place and time, where the soldiers would lift the horizontal section after the arms were fixed and place it on top of the stipes, the vertical section, by a mortise and tenon coupling. Mm. You'd asked me the other day where, you know, where was the Titillus uh, crucis nailed or put on the cross? 
Not, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any reference to that or even where, where or how it would have been placed there. But I thought to show you, this is an interesting slide. This is the oldest known depiction of uh, uh, crucifixion. Uh, it dates to the late first or early second century. It's the crucifixion of Alcamilla, a female, which is unusual. The name is inscribed above the shoulder on the right. But what you see here are in the caricature are depictions of the scourging, uh, the feet and hands being affixed. And I want you to notice the shape of the cross is a tau cross, the shape of the capital T in the English language. Mm. Uh, one, yes. Yeah, yeah, one thing that uh, I thought is kind of interesting as well, um, you know, in the Gospels, it says that uh, Simon of Cyrene helped to carry the cross. Um, yes. And that actually kind of has two things with it. One is, was the cross tied onto Jesus as he was carrying it? And then did Simon of Cyrene help, to, help him to carry it, or did he actually physically carry the cross uh, or the, uh, the patibulum himself? Uh, did you have any uh, thoughts on that? Uh, well, it, yeah, I, I mean, th that's kind of a, an off-topic subject, but it's a pointer to that Jesus was progressing into shock. Jesus died of traumatic hemorrhagic shock. He didn't die of suffocation. Uh, traumatic hemorrhagic shock is the effect of blood loss. And and so the 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 Romans weren't going to carry the patibulum. Yes, you know, and, and Jesus wasn't able to do it because he's the you know the initial symptoms of shock or lightheadedness, dizziness, feeling sweaty, clammy, heart palpitations, feeling confused, that kind of thing. So uh, that's that's kind of a, a indicator that 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 he was progressing into that, um, and which is also. A partial explanation of why Jesus died so quickly, because crucifixion could take days, and mm. Jesus was beaten. Again, you know, again, we're kind of a little bit off topic, but I've studied this for years, so I can talk for hours and hours and hours if you want. <laughs> but, but Jesus was beaten, uh, bludgeoned twice. He was beaten at the secret trial at the home of the high priest. Then he was, and and they would have beat him. That's where they put a towel on him and and beat him up and said, who's prophesying, who's hitting you, Christ? And then they took him to the Romans, where a whole company of soldiers, it says, uh, beat him, and they put the crown of uh, thorns on him. So by this time, he had been beaten more than the average crucifixion victim, and he couldn't walk to the crucifixion site. Uh, the estimates of Jesus walking were about uh, roughly 22 uh, kilometers through the evening, depending on which crucifixion mm. site you think is the accurate one. Um, but in this slide, uh, folks have thought that the markings that you see between the uh, the red lines here would may suggest that that's how he was uh, attempting to carry the patibulum. The Victim would be whipped with a flagrum, which would have uh, leather strips with uh, lead beads sewn into the end. More than one soldier would participate in the beating so that there would be bi-directional marks, which is what you see in the Shroud of Turin. Here you see that these uh, scourge marks match what we believe and understand to be the, the flagrum uh, 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 of that. Now, uh, you were asking me if the body was washed, and I would say, uh, you know, 
about the shroud here, we we don't see blood all over the cloth. So the blood would have been washed off. Now, Dr. Rogers did see serum residue around the scourge marks, but not blood, not sweat, tears, any other body effluence, nothing. So that was all washed off. There aren't those kind of contaminants on the cross, which would be easily detectable chemically. And if you said, okay, we're going to wash the body. How long is it going to take to dry? A couple hours? I, you know, you know, we can just make an estimate. So if he's seeing, if there's slight uh, residual of serum near these, it would suggest that the gross blood and, and all the other effluents that the sweat, whatever, would be washed off, but the cloth placed on the body before it was fully dried off, maybe a couple hours within a couple hours or so. So the body could have been washed very quickly, even on the way down from the cross, because they were in a hurry. And so this that would be one indicator that the body had been washed. And, and then after the body's washed, and then there's bleeding emanating from the puncture wounds, that would have been considered unclean and they would not have have uh, washed it again. Mm. Well, and you make a good point too, in that uh, if they, if you could actually today detect sweat and it hasn't been detected, I would imagine that, you know, he just walked two miles or two kilometers. He just carried this 60 pound patibulum and, or, uh, you know, was whipped cr like crazy and uh, he was under stress and therefore he would have sweat uh, quite a bit. And if there's no sweat found on the cloth, then that would mean that he would have had to have had this uh, sweat uh, cleaned off. Well, yes. And not only that, it's, as I said at the beginning, that's part of the, the customary preparation for the body. They, they, they were going to wash the body. They, that's what mm. they did. Now, Jesus' preparation was incomplete. But yes, you're correct in that they didn't find that on the shroud itself. Uh, which would be detectable. And, you know, Jesus would have been really sweaty, really clammy, you know, because you're talking about an adrenergic reaction, the, the fight or flight sort of reaction, where he's in a high state of anxiety. Uh, he's going to be sweating, clammy, you know, to whatever they, they washed him off with would be a fairly dirty cloth. Mm. But, but those exudates are not on the shroud, which is a strong indicator that that he that the body was washed and wrapped in the shroud before it was fully dried off mm. you know, uh, by by evaporation, I suppose. Um, how the how the hands were nailed. Now this is an interesting thing. Uh, you know, if you Dr. Barbet did experiments on hands he amputated. And if you drive a nail through the center of the hand, it'll pull out with about 100 pounds of uh, distraction force. It, it would really hurt, but, but it would pull out between the fingers. <laughs> he found that if he drove the nail through the hand like you see here, which is basically if you bend your ring finger down as far as you can to the vertical wrist crease in your palm and drive a nail through that spot, it'll go through the wrist bones without fracturing them. And he did that a dozen times and, and mm -hmm. had what we see here in this x-ray. Um, that would macerate or uh, transect or cut in half the median nerve that goes to this part of the hand, which is what the nerve that's pinched in carpal tunnel syndrome. So it'd be outlandishly painful. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
but it would be like that. Now, uh, I want to sh show you a, a couple of things here. We don't see the thumbs, and I've heard people say, well, why don't we see the thumbs? Why don't we see the thumbs? And it's, it's, they're in a quandary about it and uh, all sorts of explanations. But I, I think the explanation, to me at least, is, it seems pretty obvious. People have said, well, if you mash the nerve, it's going to cramp the hand. Well, yes, it will. But as soon as you remove the nerve supply to those muscles, they, they go flaccid, they go dead. So the posture of the hand would be like this. And you see that in some iconography. Some people knew that and put it in their mm. artwork. But the, the thumb has complex movement. So it adducts uh, from the palm and laterally adducts, and then it rotates here at the base of the thumb and adducts across the hand. It's an, it opposes the other fingers. So if you drive a nail through that spot, it will tether these muscles and pull the thumb inward. Hmm. And then again, rigor mortis would have set in rapidly with a violent death like this and held the thumbs like that. I think that's the most straightforward and obvious reason why we don't see them. Mm. And then, then I want you to see uh, the, the bleeding from the, the wrist here. Uh, Dr. Zugaby pointed out, this is not the, what it would look like uh, if, if the individual were alive. If the vascular system were pressurized by the beating heart, it wouldn't look like this. There would be a more continuous and larger discharge of blood, even though the primary circulation of the hand is not affected here by that nail, as, as in Dr. Barbet's experiments. Still, you would have uh, you know, more blood. The rivulets uh, of blood on the arms of the man in the Shroud of Turin is not a lot of blood. Mm. You know, I, I give people injections every day with a small needle the size of a pencil mark on your on your paper and sometimes they have a lot of blood if, if there's a small vein that happens to be in the way this is uh, this is blood that oozed from those wounds after the individual is dead and I, I think that's clear and it, now here's another interesting thing you know the the image of the man occurred after uh, after the blood was on the cloth because the image is not underneath the blood. A lot of people probably know that. But it, it's a peculiar thing because, first off, if you were going to paint this image, would you paint the blood stains first and then paint the man around it? That's kind of counterintuitive. And then if you were going to paint blood at all, would you use blood to paint blood? Because blood, you know, blood's kind of living tissue. You know, it, 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 it will change. It will coagulate in the jar if you set it there. And it turns dark. So you wouldn't use uh, blood to paint blood. Mm. The take-home point here is that this, this is blood oozing from a dead body. It's not blood oozing from an individual that's alive. Mm. Um, Dr. Barbet thought that those blood signs indicated that that Jesus was changing position on the cross, that he was suffocating. And I, just as a side point, the idea that Jesus suffocated is a modern idea, modern meaning in the past hundred years. It was originated with a French surgeon named Lebec and a Czechoslovakian surgeon named Heineck, and then became popularized by Dr. Barbet, and that's how I ended up studying the Shroud of Turin. Um, but I would just point out here that uh, ancient literary references to crucifixion 
are devoid of anybody thinking that or describing any of those people having trouble breathing. And here's uh, Eusebius, who <clears throat> was uh, the bishop of Caesarea, which was the seat of Roman government in Judea. He saw crucifixions. He lived during that time. And he said, um, uh, others again were crucified, some as malefactors usually are, and some, even more brutally, were nailed in opposite matter and heads downward and kept alive until they should perish of hunger. You see, mm. he thought they died of deprivation. He thought they died of hunger. He thought they starved to death. Mm. And again, because crucifixion could take days. Uh, I get, this is a side point, I know, but I, I, I gave you references. Folks can look up this in detail. And Dr. McGovern's article, I think, puts that whole idea to rest very well. The idea that Jesus suffocated is just, um, it's a modern invention, and it's mm. not supportably, uh, sort of medically. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and uh, I I see your point as well. And because I think you know most, uh, and I and, and I think you're going to get to it, but most people uh, or theories had it where you know you had to push up on your legs to be able to exhale uh, because of the way your arms were, and then your lungs I think were fill up with liquid or whatever, and and then also because you couldn't exhale, then you would you would uh, asphyxiate because you weren't able to exhale. And that seems to be the old argument. And what you have is then certainly, uh, I guess, the, you know, the new argument as to what really caused the death of uh, Jesus. Well, you know, it's it's unfortunate that it has become part of church folklore and that every, yeah. Easter, yeah. every Easter you're going to hear a sermon about how Jesus suffocated. Um, but uh, again, that that really uh, came from Dr. Barbet, and that was based on. And, and uh, listeners can get my book and read the explanation, where they can get Dr. Barbet's book, which is excellent in many respects. But he he kind of made that argument based on suspension torture that was part of the Nazi penal code in Appendix One in his book. He describes death of an individual by suspension torture that occurred in three and a half hours. But that's not analogous to crucifixion because the arms were suspended directly overhead, the feet were unsupported, and sometimes weights were placed on, on the feet of the individual. It, it was a horrible thing that they did. And if they uh, prolonged that torture to more than three hours, it would, it would uh, extend to murder. Mm. Um, so, so yes, uh, the, it's, a, it's a flawed analogy. And then Dr. Barbet, uh, looked at the blood flow images on the hand and said, oh, look, he was changing positions on the cross. That's why there's a bifurcation of the blood. It was an a priori conclusion to fit his his uh, mm. idea. And uh, so, uh, you know, again, not to throw stones at him, his book is brilliant in many ways, but that, that uh, was an unfortunate, uh, erroneous conclusion that became part of church folklore and probably always will be because I, I, I'm trying to stamp it out, but I can't. <laughs> and people that come to my lectures are mostly the pastors don't come. It's the other folks. So, so I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, in John chapter 19, John describes the spear wound to Jesus' chest as uh, water and, and blood as two different things. And we can understand that easily. Uh, water for our fluid can collect around the lungs, even with blunt trauma, and it's going to be clear unless there's penetrating trauma. That's called a pleural effusion. 
when the spear enters the chest, it will first encounter clear fluid. And then when the heart is ruptured, the blood will mix with that and it will give that appearance mm. uh, of blood. So it will first appear clear, then secondly appear uh, to be blood. And th that's easily explainable. And again, uh, you see the, the puncture wound and then you see the blood oozing around to the back. So the, the body was lying in a supine or on, on the back. Mm. Yep. Um, moving on to a discussion of the cloth, uh, you know, linen, linen is, it was used everywhere in the ancient world, still used today. And um, it's a very, very stable sort of uh, cloth. The oldest linen garment is the Tarkin dress, which dates to the mid uh, fourth millennia, millennia BC. So it's really old. And if you take linen and, and keep it in a clean and dry environment, and protected, it would, it would be last indefinitely or essentially forever. So it's not surprising that a piece of linen could survive to modern times that, that dates back to Jesus' day. Uh, this is from the Prey Codex. Prey is the guy's name that found the book. But you see an artistic de depiction, which obviously is, it can't be anything other than the Shroud of Turin. And the reason is that the, it shows the cloth itself, and the artist is trying to depict the herringbone pattern, and he depict, depicts the uh, the poker hole that people call it poker holes, but it's where the incense burnt holes into the cloth. So it's clearly a depiction of the shroud before the fire of 1432, and this this book dates to 1190. Um, so the shroud is very old. Now we know the provenance of the shroud of mid 14th century, and before that it becomes literary sorts of references and things that people can review. It's not uh, a point of interest to me specifically, but it's certainly older than, than uh, the carbon dating. Now, most people know, I think, that the carbon dating was a sampling error, uh, where you see here that the the a piece of the shroud about the size of your small finger was cut out of the corner and then cut into strips and sent to a lab for uh, carbon dating. And I don't think people take issue with the lab analysis per se, but what the problem is, it's sampling error, because it's well established that there were cotton fibers mixed with uh, linen fibers. And uh, so the the sample was contaminated. Uh, in Leviticus 19.19, 19, the Jews did not mix fibers when they were weaving cloth. Uh, so it would not be a cultural norm for them to mix uh, 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 cotton with linen for the fabric. And that's only seen there in, in the... So basically, it's a repair that occurred uh, to the cloth. And what they sampled was a repair area where cotton had been woven into the fringe of the cloth before it was sewn to the Holland cloth to protect it. Linen is harvested from linseed plant. Uh, on the left, you see linen fibers, and they basically look, you know, something like a bamboo shoot, and then it's got these dark specks here that are growth nodes. Now, in, in the growth nodes, that's an important observation because it has a compound called lignin, and lignin evolves over time 
a compound called vanillin, which is part of vanilla and artificial vanilla flavor. And I've read that 40% of commercial uh, artificial vanilla flavor is harvested from uh, linen. On the right side of the screen, you see uh, the cotton fibers. Uh, and here you can see from the repair, the, the cotton fibers look very, very different. Uh, I mean, it's obvious under the microscope that the cotton fibers look kind of like a piece of a spiral tape. And the linen fibers look kind of like a bamboo shoot. They're, they're clearly the same thing. It, anyone can see that in the, the uh, cotton fiber on the upper part of the slide is uh, has pigment on it. It's colored and the, the one underneath it is not. And so the presence of lignin and the evolution of vanillin from lignin allows us to estimate the age of the cloth. And um, because it's a chemical reaction that occurs and occurs very, very slowly. And, but we can calculate the rate of a chemical reaction. We can, a chemical, the rate of a chemical reaction can be known. And Dr. Rogers and his colleagues calculated the rate constant and I provided you with a reference of how they did the math for that. Um, but using the Arrhenius equation, they were able to estimate the age of the cloth. The pro one of the problems is that uh, the temperature history of the cloth was unknown. Uh, we know that there are some burn spots on there, but there's not a, the temperature gradient was steep and there's not a temperature effect on the unburned parts of the cloth. Uh, and so that would mean it never got over the 300 degree mark Fahrenheit, and it probably was never frozen. So, but other than that, we can't we can't tell what the age was, and it it forces us to uh, speculate or provide a range of potential dates for the age of the cloth. And again, Dr. Rogers did the math on this. Uh, but he estimated the age of the cloth to be between 1300 and 3000 years old. Yeah, so that would uh, uh, that would take it to roughly AD 700 back to BC to 1000, I guess. So uh, yeah, yeah, very yeah. interesting. No, and uh, you know, what's interesting too about this is you have the radiocarbon dating, but very few people are familiar with this one. It's the the knowledge of the radiocarbon dating is like you know a hundred times the the knowledge of this one, and it's just fascinating to see how everybody looks at the carbon dating and says, "Up, oh, it must be fake." Whereas there's all these other tests, including this one, which is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty specific, and uh, uh, you know, and so and then and then nobody really knows about this one. Well, it's it's it seems like everything about the Shroud of Turin is uh, is about in the media is about sensationalism. It's like we, we talked the other day, some there was a news organization that came out and said, oh, it's it's authentic. But a couple of years later, they had a news piece that said it was a fraud. And when so with the carbon dating, it was in the news media, oh, the people have proved it's a hoax and all this stuff. Uh, and they dated it to uh, 1260 to 1390. You've got a artistic image of the shroud that's at 1190 mm. you have to you have to ask yourself was there a problem there and then once you know that that there was a sampling problem that, that they could have you know scientifically they should have sampled the areas all over the cloth but they didn't they sampled one swatch mm. and in fairness they sent it to three different labs but it was one sample from, yeah. you know and they 
as soon as they knew it was contaminated, they should have stopped. Uh, but but anyway, that's that 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 is not to belabor that discussion. But it was yeah it was, yeah. And there's a lot. And uh, and by the way, uh, Joe Marino. I don't know if you've seen any of his books, but he's got a a really interesting expose on on all of the politics surrounding that radiocarbon dating. So uh, yeah yeah. And, yes, uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit aware of that. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and there was a recently a publication where uh, the X-ray refraction of the uh, linen in the shroud was found to be comparable to linen that was discovered at Masada. Mm. And uh, uh, listeners may know, you know, the Jewish war in in AD seventy, uh, Jerusalem was decimated, and uh, the war uh, between the Jews and the Romans went on until. Uh, the fortress of Masada was decimated in AD 74. If I understand it correctly, everyone, men, women, and children committed suicide before being captured by the Romans. Mm. Yeah. I've heard that there's a saying in, uh, among the Jews that uh, Masada never again. Mm. And uh, so <laughs> you can see their resilience and self-preservation. But so that linen goes to the first century. And if the X-ray refraction of that linen and the Shroud of Turin are similar uh, in contradistinction to medieval linen or, or things manufactured later, later, that's also empiric evidence. And, and mm. Schwartz would be quick to say, well, that's not a method of, of dating the cloth. And, and it's not, and he's correct. But it, it does have value in that it's a physical observation. It's uh, an x-ray refraction of the linen that would be consistent with a first century uh, cloth. Yeah, hi, Joe. Uh, let me interrupt you here. Uh, I think we're going to take a break. And uh, let's do this. We'll take a break here, and then we'll continue here after a short break, and we'll set up a, a second round on this. I'm speaking with Joe Bergeron. He is a medical doctor, and he's done quite a bit of work on understanding the uh, Crucifixion of Jesus. This is his book, the, Crucifix the Crucifixion of Jesus, A Medical Doctor Examines the Death and Resurrection of Christ. And uh, we'll be right back. <laughs> 